Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK here in our nation's capital. Not too far away is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, and uh, not too far away from her, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and too far away from uh, the three of us is Corey Shockey uh, at her command center, (laughs) Uh, off some <laughs> lovely picturesque square in the United Kingdom. Uh, are you guys actually on a square? Do you have like some, you know, lovely building that says IISS House or something? We do have a lovely building. It's called Arundel House. And it sits uh, it sits right by the Lockworts. So it's right okay. by Embankment and Temple. And it is indeed gorgeous. Can I can I make one pronunciation uh, intervention here, Corey? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, please correct my English. It's it's Aaron Arundel House, Aaron, not Arundel. No, but, no, you know. no. You pronounce it wrong, Ed, and Corey's going to fix this. Yeah. Well, for, we'll, we'll ultimately we'll get we'll, with the United States. We'll get with the business of correcting all of the English mispronunciations. And I saw that the Financial Times is on jihad against creeping Americanisms in its newspaper. So I am fighting my corner. Well, you also you also with me. Nothing to do with me. You ought to know better because, of course, the county in which the former capital of the United States, Annapolis, Maryland, exists is Anne Arundel County. And it was a famous Catholic family deep into the history of 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 England, uh, several of whom came to the United States and to Maryland in order to escape persecution of the Catholics. That is, that is not a true? very that is a very beautiful history. Um, I will only say that my favorite tweet last week was someone piping up that they were always happy when they heard people mispronounce uh, things because that meant that those people had learned them from reading. So, so I'm going to wrap myself in the ermine robe of I learned it from reading. <laughs> well, that's good. That's a very good. That that's a a very good uh, robe. It's it's a dangerous area because I've known people to talk about vignettes, and I remember somebody at one point <laughs> talking about somebody rich owning a string of poloponies, which was polo ponies. So, <laughs> so you know, I realized it was a cheap defense of my ignorance, but it was the best thing I could do at a, the moment. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good one. So let's start with sort of some of the bigger news developments of the recent past. And I think we have to begin by giving credit where it is due Rosa, because Vladimir Putin has done something which no one has ever done in, in recent history. 
Uh, and it's not winning a fourth term as president of Russia, but it's it's actually winning the election in both major superpowers within a two-year span. <laughs> um, I know. Impressive, isn't it? It really... <laughs> This guy is, is on a roll. Um, and when he gets out of government, if he wants to add to his $200 billion that he's stolen, perhaps political consultancy is where he would go. Um, but I'm just wondering, let's each of us talk a little bit about what we see as the big consequences of that. And let me start with you, Rosa. Well, you know, this was obviously not a surprise. Nobody expected the Russian electorate to profoundly repudiate Vladimir Putin, uh, who remains quite popular uh, in Russia. Um, so, so I, you know, I don't think that this, I don't think that there's any dramatic new twist, but this certainly guarantees us uh, an even more emboldened Putin, who has just been validated revalidated by his own electorate uh, and will feel like he's, you know, as you say, he's just had two big victories. He's, he's on a roll. Um, so I think we can expect that it had, had, had the vote been a little bit different, maybe we would see an ever so slightly more cautious or chastened Putin. But I think we can expect to see Putin feeling like, hey, why should I stop what I'm doing? It's working pretty well. Um, indeed, it seems to be working extremely well for him. It's, he's just going from uh, strength to strength. Ed, do you see any sort of risks out there for Putin in his you know, current pr- pr- behavior? You know, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting and, and poses some really interesting kind of scenarios is that the United States last week, following on the um, nerve attack on uh, a Russian agent and his daughter and a bunch of other folks in the UK uh, actually decided to impose sanctions on Russia. Um, uh, and they, you know, administration won a lot of credit for this, although there wasn't really much and it wasn't really timely since sanctions had been voted a long time ago. But you've got to wonder just how much independent mindedness Putin is going to tolerate from Trump before he starts leaking bits of information into the U.S. political system to make Trump's life more miserable, don't you? Uh, Yes, you do. Um, And um, uh, one suspects, you know, if even a a half of the Steele dossier is correct, that there is a lot of material Putin can use there to... uh, to intimidate Trump. Um, you know, are there any risks to Putin from the current situation, um, you know, that he's in this, this fourth-term landslide with roughly the turnout he wanted, almost 70% and almost 80% voting for him? Yes, there are. I mean, you mentioned the $200 billion, whether it's $50 billion or $200 billion is is neither here nor there. Um, th- this man cannot afford to relinquish power. There is no level of confidence that he can have in whoever it is that he lines up in the coming years to replace him, um, that that person uh, will respect Putin's uh, money, his um, immunity, um, uh, his ability to enjoy uh, these ill-gotten gains. Uh, The paranoia um, that will guarantee Putin does manipulate the Russian constitution to perpetuate his power is, I think, inbuilt. Um, 
at the same time, the fact that, you know, he isn't undertaking the kinds of economic reforms that can generate um, Russian growth um, uh, independent of oil and gas prices, um, it, 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 that's not going to happen because the entire system is based around a distribution of, pat of patronage to the oligarchs around him, who, of course, are also using um, uh, various um, channels to, to, through, through the Caribbean and Britain and America to conceal their ill-gotten gains. So the crisis, uh, the Putin crisis is inbuilt. He's not going to relinquish power. He's not going to reform Russia. The only way he can stay in power is to generate foreign policy crises. And, and we had one you know, um, a bang on time last week in Britain, um, just before the election, we're going to have a, a, a lot more. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. Corey, do you think Putin has anything to worry about or is he sort of in the catbird seat for another couple of years? Uh, I cannot improve on what Ed just said. He's exactly right. It's too dangerous for... Putin to give up power because sooner or later transparency is going to pierce the opaque nature of his financial dealings, of his uh, fomenting of violence in Russia and outside of it. Uh, and so he feels to me like he's he meets the definition that Thomas Jefferson gave of slavery which is we are holding a wolf by the ears. It's too dangerous to hold and too dangerous to let go. Um, and, and so I think we have a lot of trouble ahead with Putin. The only time it looks to me like his behavior has been modified and perversely, uh, Dan Dresner and others have written very powerfully on how this dynamic is, fits with President Trump as well and goes to our last recording session about uh, about preventing the rot that President Trump is perpetuating in our political system. The only check is when there are negative consequences for the outcome. So uh, when Russian mercenaries in Syria uh, were uh, attacked an American, a base where Americans were, and, and we retaliated with lethal force, the Russians didn't do anything provocative. And uh, we need to stop being so fearful that our policy is going to set off negative consequences and start being more fearful that our policy, by doing too little, is encouraging negative consequences. Well, isn't there? I mean, one of the things we've talked about a little bit here, Rosa, but I, I really think it's a much bigger deal than a lot of people in the world take into consideration. A very high likelihood that Russia is going to get caught in what I would call the post-Trump snapback. Now, I mean, you could say that might not happen for six and a half years, but the, the, the reality is probably is going to happen a lot sooner than that. And whoever follows Trump in office is going to feel a huge amount of pressure to undo a lot of the most egregious things that he did, I suspect. Um, and the, air, the, the area that's going to be first on this is Russia. And it's coming right at a time that the United States 
military industrial establishment has decided to buy back into the notion that its real focus is great power rivalries um, and that Russia and China will be the ticket to continuing to spend $700 billion a year uh, for the foreseeable future uh, in a country that can't afford to spend that. And so I just, you know, I is, is, isn't, you know, another thing that's sort of out there in the future for Vladimir Putin uh, and a U.S. administration that's going to go, now we're going to deal with you. Now we're going to come back at you in a way that you should have been brought, come back at before on cyber, on hacking, on Syria, on Ukraine, on corruption, uh, with sanctions, with international movement and so on and so forth. Um and that that's going to be a source of, of problems for him and real tension? I think that's probably right, assuming that there is a post-Trump era and we all live to see it, which uh, I sincerely oh hope will, <laughs> will be the case. Rosa. Um, but, oh, my God. But, but, well, but I, so, so the thing about Putin, right, is that, is that he, it's not that he's in power because the Communist Party has a lockhold on the political system He's in power because he has succeeded in essentially turning Russia into his, you know, personal playground and, uh, uh, you know, uh, treasure chest. Um, and he has put his own cronies into positions of power. Russian politics is all about how amazing Vladimir Putin is. It's highly personalized. Um, uh, it's not there's no sharing. He's not sharing. You know, he's not sharing the glory. He's not sharing the political power. Um, he is sharing the wealth in order to stock up, uh, uh, stock up government agencies and important companies with his people. But that's about it. So, so I, so I also think, you know, and this is a point that uh, many political scientists who specialize in Russia have made, including Fiona Hill, who's now in the the White House. Uh, for, for the, the for the foreseeable future, for, the foreseeable, for another day or two until yeah. she resigns or is ousted, um, you know, has, has made is is that this creates a really unstable environment in terms of succession. Um, so I, you know, Putin himself, he's he's sixty five years old. You know, what happens when he's seventy five years old or eighty five years old? at a time when sanctions from the U.S. and Europe, we hope, become much tougher, at a time when his cronies who are helping to keep his regime alive start feeling like their support for him is hurting their wallets. You know, I, I think it is, it is a dangerous moment because, you know, Putin is about Putin. He's not about Russia. You know, just as Donald Trump is not about Donald Trump, is not about America, he's about Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, the, the scenario you paint in which a, a future post-Trump president really starts going after Russia, whether whether through sanctions or militarily or, or legally, at, will come at a time most likely when Putin himself will be feeling more uneasy. You know, that he's also in a situation, if you're Putin, you, you can't afford to retire. You know, somebody kills you or takes your money if you retire. So you've got to cling right. on forever because you can't trust. You know, you, you, Putin himself is also holding the wolf's ears and he can't let go. You know, so, so all of this starts happening at a moment when Putin himself is getting older, more frightened, more under threat internally. And how does that end? You know, maybe it ends in the next set of kleptocrats taking over and, and ousting Putin in some spectacular way. 
But maybe it ends by Putin holding on to his own internal power precisely by whipping up great power conflict and saying to a to a, you know, empowered U.S. saying, hey, bring it on. You know, you want World War Three, I can give it to you because that's the way most likely for me to have a quiet death death uh, that takes place while I am in power rather than when I have been disgraced, impoverished or murdered. Ah, well, that's a that's a an image. Um, yeah, that didn't really make any sense. Actually, you can't have a quiet death instead. instead well, anyway, never mind. But you get the idea. No, we, <laughs> I got a little lost in that sentence. <laughs> well, it's okay. You were uh, carrying me along with you, Rosa. Yeah, we were until the we, very end. We were all, all <laughs> we were all lost in the sentence with you. But um, you know, let me just shift the the focus. Is I'd like to sort of go to a couple of big issues in the course of of this conversation. Um, and of course, we can come back to. Um, uh, well, there's one thing. One thing more about Russia. I don't, I don't know if you followed this, Ed, but uh, uh, the FT has done some interesting stuff about it. Um, it, in a, it. It seems like this organization, um, Cambridge Associates, um, which provided Cambridge some. Analytica. Okay, sorry, Cambridge Analytica, which provided some uh, services to the Trump organization, was a involved in stealing a lot of data from people on Facebook, um, and b seemed to have a bunch more Russian ties than we thought, um, uh, and was doing some business for the Russians. Weirdly, you know, like business Lukoil wanted information on American politics, and one of their top guys was involved in Russia. Um, and it seems like this is yet another sort of area of connection, both between Russia and the Trump campaign and another area of connection um, uh, between the really, really lousy job that the U.S. Uh, social media companies did and the outcome of the election. And I was just wondering if you had a take on it. Um, well, the, the, the Cambridge Analytica... Uh, used a a Russian uh, um, uh, American academic at Cambridge University um, research model um, was the one that you know was seen as far better than any other competing ones of of hooking in Facebook users and this was the one that 270,000 it was a personality um, test that they uh, app that they put up um, and that, that's what 270,000 people signed up to un, unwittingly, therefore giving Cambridge Analytica access to the 50 million profiles it used to build its psychographic data. The, the, there are a lot of um, uh, interesting characters in uh, the background of Cambridge Analytica from Canada, from Britain and from Russia and, of course, from the United States. Uh, one of its first big clients was Rosneft, the um, uh, the Russian oil company, uh, run run by one of um, Putin's best friends, uh, Igor Serchin, um, uh, which had commissioned a Cambridge Analytica to do uh, work that I'm still rather hazy on, that was being done at the same time as Cambridge Analytica was building its ties with Steve Bannon. Um, I'd love to tell you more about what kind of profiles they were building for Rosneft, but unfortunately, I'm not up to speed on that. Uh, well, 
So I I have a view on this. Uh, Well, share it. uh, Which is that um, I would love to have our deep state nerds who are techies uh, avalanche us on Twitter with their views about whether the Cambridge Analytica story represents a data breach that is uh, malevolence by Cambridge Analytica and therefore they are being justifiably penalized by Facebook, or whether Facebook is trying to paint them as the enemy when in fact that is what the business model of Facebook actually does when it's working properly. And they just don't like this particular outcome. Um, Because I honestly don't know the answer to it, but it seems to me really important. And the fact that Facebook was threatening to sue both newspapers that broke the story up until the moment Facebook issued its press release, casting itself as virtuous in this in this tale, makes me nervous that that we may actually be focusing on a symptom and not a cause. I, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, sorry, I'm uh, interrupting, but just, just very briefly, uh, quite quite separate but very closely related to this is um, Mark Zuckerberg's. Um, announcement at the beginning of this year that Facebook was tweaking its model to, you know, uh, direct users more towards what their friends are up to rather than what um, uh, political news is coming through. And that was seen as a belated but good, good, well-intentioned attempt for Facebook to uh, correct course, when in fact what it almost certainly is, is Facebook um, looking to the China market um, you know, as you know, Facebook's global usership has plateaued at two billion plus. It's not going to grow much more than that without China. It needs to break into China, uh, and I think that everything Facebook does should not be read at face value. Um, it is a revenue maximization model, as private companies are. It is not a democracy promotion system. That's true, and it has resisted every um, effort to be put into categories like media, where there may be some kind of regulation for its uh, uh, impact on democracy, uh, which is completely anachronistic. And I have to say, even though I have friends at places like Facebook, uh, it is hard to imagine an organization that could be mismanaging um, its public policy side more egregiously. Um, I've, I've just, it's, it, you know, every single time they have a chance to step out, get ahead of a story, do the right thing, they go in the other direction. I think because they may think they're invulnerable or maybe because they're afraid, maybe because they're afraid of what they've done. But they have a role to play in this thing. Cambridge Analytica plays a role in it. As I saw somebody comment on Twitter, um, at, at one point, Cambridge Analytica didn't add a huge amount of value, and a lot of people signed up on it simply because it was so close to the Mercers, the big Republican funding family. Um, but I suspect that um, a great deal more is going to come out about this data mining and how it was used, what the origins of the algorithms were, and so forth, because it's central to the campaign and because this was an area of the campaign that was run um, by Jared Kushner, and of course, <clears throat> it's an area that dovetails 
uh, with the other activities that the Russians were involved with, including uh, hacking and disinformation. Uh, so, one yeah. other question I would love to know the answer to: How does what we are condemning happening in the 2016 election differ from the way the Obama administration's data mining efforts in 28 and 2012? Those were celebrated as a smart new approach, and I don't understand. I, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to make any comparisons. I'm saying I genuinely don't understand. Is this a natural progression of us using big data in smart ways? How was what was done in 2016 nefarious? Uh, again, I'm not defending it. I'm perfectly prepared to believe it was nefarious on the part of several parties, but I I don't understand enough about how these things are working. Uh, yeah. Uh, and well, and, you know, there's some things where people have already said there's a distinction. They, For example, the Obama administration didn't steal access to the data of 50 million people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's some strong arguments to be made that they didn't use Russian inputs either. Uh, look, we've only got a little bit of time left, and there are another couple of stories that I would like to touch to. They connect to each other. They have to do with Iran and North Korea. Uh, and a number of people, including um, uh, uh, Senator Crocker most recently, have said that they believe that the president will in May withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. And Pompeo is certainly in the school of, of, of hawk, hawkish on Iran. Um, and it, it seems to me that if, in fact, this is direction the president goes, um, and he does withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, presumably unilaterally, um, that this is going to make it really darn hard to go and have any discussion with the North Koreans. Now, having said that, I mean, because why would the North Koreans believe anything the United States signed at that point? But, 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 but the other thing that is, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, worrisome about this is that as Trump gets deeper and deeper into trouble, uh, having flare up with Iran that exacerbates the situation with North Korea, which, by the way, apparently we haven't heard back from since we said or the president said he would meet with them, um, <laughs> which is kind of weird. But, um, you know, uh, that this you know poses a risk of conflict in two key places in the world coming up into the election season in the fall, um, which may be seen as politically expedient. And so I was just, I really wanted to sort of shoot around the group and I'll start with you, Corey, but I want to shoot around the group and get your take on these rumors that Trump's going to pull out of this and what you think the impact on, on both situations is. Uh, I do think it is likelier than not that the president will uh, pull out of the Iranian agreement on May 12th or May 8th, whichever the date is that the next decision has to be made. I think one of the reasons he was always so frustrated with Rex Tillerson was that Secretary Tillerson understood in a way the president refuses to, that whoever withdraws from the deal is going to be seen as collapsing the deal and that second, there is zero probability of us getting a better outcome than we already have. 
I think the Europeans have tried to be palliative. Uh, you know, they even last week uh, passed a or agreed to additional sanctions uh, subsequent to the deal. Um, so not connected to the deal, but in order to try and persuade the Trump administration to stay in place. Every member of the president's national security cabinet has testified that staying in the deal is in our national security interests and that the Iranians are in compliance with the deal. This is going to be a huge self-inflicted wound. It will uh, make managing Iran much more difficult. And it, to the extent that the North Koreans notice anything going on in the world, it ought to make them less likely to make a bargain with us. I don't, I'm skeptical any of us understand enough about what's going on, any of us meaning everybody in the world, not the people on this podcast, um, understand enough about what's going on in North Korea to know what affects their judgment. But I should just say it ought to affect their judgment. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, the, the North Koreans have been incredibly sort of rational about how they've handled this whole thing. It would be really surprising uh, if they were, if it didn't affect their judgment. What, what, what do you think, Rosa? Yeah, no, I, I, I think Corey's analysis is absolutely right. Um, I, you know, I, I think the North Koreans are, you know, crazy like foxes. They're very concerned with their own self-preservation. Uh, they pay close attention to the behavior of other major powers, especially the United States. And if we pull out of the Iran deal, uh, what's the point of their trusting anything we say? You know, I, I don't I don't know that there's a good outcome in North Korea, even if we don't pull out of the Iran deal. Uh, given given everything, Fair enough. Um, right. but but I, I I think it's sort of you know we go from the possibility of a good outcome being you know twenty percent to the possibility of a good outcome being three percent or something I don't know. Um, uh, I, I also, as Corey says, leaving aside the North Koreans, the the impact on international security more generally, the impact on Iran's behavior in the Middle East, I think will be devastating. You know, one of the, one of the uh, uh, principles, sort of the core principles of international law and international relations is that states do what they say they're going to do and they, they keep their agreements. And, uh, you know, while not every state keeps every agreement all of the time, most states do keep most of their agreements most of the time. And, and for for the United States, the uh, remaining, if badly flailing, superpower to spectacularly pull out of an agreement that everybody else wants us to stay in and that we only recently and triumphantly entered, uh, I think the reputational damage it does us and the, the instability it generates, uh, not just in, it's not just the North Koreans who stop trusting us. I think it's, it's our allies as well. Ed. What do you think the consequence of such a pullout would be, um, and what do you think the, conse the the likelihood of a kind of wag the dog scenario is? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I I don't disagree at all with what Corey and, and Rosa have said about the consequences of a of a likely pullout and the fact that it is likely um, when that date comes due in May. Uh, I, I, so, a couple of a couple of data points here. I mean, this is ultimately 
these decisions about Trump's psychology. Um, this is about the state of the president's head. And as I think we've remarked um, you know, before, uh, he, he believes he's getting more Trumpy by, by the week. Um, he's, he, he believes he doesn't need advisors, um, that his own instincts uh, are superior to expertise. Um, and uh, that that all keys into what I think is going to be a likely pullout um, um, in May. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is um, visiting the United States this week and next week. He's on a prolonged tour of the United States. Um, and uh, he has a very, very plain view on this, his influence on the Trump, on, on President Trump and, and on uh, Jared Kushner is, is uh, pretty acute. He wants America to pull out um, the Israeli, well, the Netanyahu government wants America to pull out of the Iran deal. So I think the sort of decks are stacked. It should be mentioned um, that the South Korean foreign minister is also coming to Washington. Um, he won't be seeing um, Rex Tillerson. Um, he'll be seeing uh, Ivanka Trump. She will be the White House's point person um, <laughs> uh, for, for talks. So uh, when, when, you know, when we're, when we're assessing the psychology... You just knocked the wind out of me, Ed. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's how things work around here at at, at, at the moment. And, um, you know, it all, it all sort of reinforces what you and Rosa have said, um, that, that I don't think this Iran deal has, has long to live. What a, what a, what a catastrophe that would be. But Corey, I want to go back to your hyperventilating. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable. The notion that with the president is offering up Ivanka Trump, who, as far as we know, doesn't have any experience in this area, has a ton of conflicts of interest, may not have a security clearance, has no expertise, um, to deal with what is theoretically the most sensitive issue the administration is facing in, in foreign policy terms right now might I... seem to be an error. But I... <laughs> You know, maybe maybe yes. I'm just too close to it all. Understatement of the 21st century goes to David Rothgard. Yeah, oh, thank you. Uh, uh, um, yes, it it is otherwise known as complete lunacy that that is what they are doing. There is no foreign policy problem that has less margin for error than dealing with a nuclear armed North Korea. And that this president is fundamentally unserious about that problem is is scary. Yeah, it mm, it, you think? it it yeah. <laughs> 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 I was thinking I was thinking of you know earlier when you started talking. Adore you. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we all do. And I was thinking of this earlier. You know, when you were talking about your outlook for something, and it was incredibly bleak. And I was thinking, <laughs> what would rosa-colored glasses actually do? You know, <laughs> rosa-colored glasses. <laughs> Our new deep state. Radio I'm telling spread. you, this is good, though, guys. If you always expect apocalypse, then you're often pleasantly surprised. Charcoal. <laughs> and are they shot glasses, champagne glasses, <laughs> old-fashioned glasses? We need to hear from you, deep state nerds. 
<laughs> Rosa-colored glasses. Oh, man. Um, that was so good, David. Thank you. Well, I think we should stop there. Because it's unlikely to get any better. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of time for further discussions. And Lord knows what the fuck is going to happen the rest of this week. You know, we t- we record these things and then some insanity happens. And I'm going to be, you know, traveling on the road and I'll call you and we'll say, no, we've got to go and do something suddenly about all of this. But I have a longer term project that I want to float out there into the world of the deep state uh, radio nerds. Um, and that, and which is a growing group, by the way, and we are so happy that um, that there are more and more of you out there coming in and tuning in. And there's now more than 80 episodes for you to dip into, and we hope you will go back to ones that you've missed because there's a lot of good out there. Um, I really love the family of people that we've got on this show, but periodically I I, I struggle with the fact that while we try to maintain gender diversity and we try to broaden the audience on a regular basis, we don't have many people of color on this show. We don't have a real diversity uh, in terms of um, uh, outside the beltway or age or anything else. And quite apart from this show, that doesn't exist anywhere in the foreign policy world. I just, that you know, it is the same old voices saying the same old thing. And whether we create some, we broaden the the group associated with Deep State Radio, or we create some kind of other kind of um, podcast to broaden out, I think there are vast communities of extremely smart, engaged, new voices that have no other place to go. And what I would encourage the Deep State Radio nerd listenerdom to do, because you know those people, you are those people, is... Either, you know, you know, e- email, email me at David at the Rothkopf Group or tweet something at us. I'd like to know some names. I'd like to know some ideas. I'd like to know some reactions to this. I'd like to fill a void somehow by hearing from the people we need to hear from that we're not hearing from. So please send that in to us. Let's see what we can do with it. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, everybody, from listening. And We'll be back with you again real soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.